Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is receiving a big shipment of AstraZeneca next week that's going to be used as second doses. Should Ontarians be concerned about this? When it comes to Canadians' trust, who do we really feel provides the most reliable information about the pandemic and vaccines? We'll get into that as well. And we get reaction to the federal government's announcement into Hamilton's light rail transit. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Great deal of concern going on right now, of course, about the uh, Ontario government announcement the other day to uh, basically put a pause on the AstraZeneca vaccine for first doses anyway. Uh, and that's created a great deal of concern from a number of people saying, well, is it safe? I mean, should we even be getting the second dose of AstraZeneca? And it's uh, not just the provincial government, of course, because other provincial governments have done this as well. But it's uh, filtered all the way up to the federal government, too. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he expects to receive a second dose of AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine once he's able to, on the advice of his doctor. Uh, he was responding to a question from a conservative Michelle Ripple Garner over the confusion of what Canadians can actually receive as a second doses. Some of these provinces have put a pause. This is what the Prime Minister had to say in answer to that question. Is the Prime Minister and the government recommending that people who received the first dose of AstraZeneca get a second dose of AstraZeneca, or is he advising them to contact their doctor? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. The Prime Minister and the government don't make health recommendations. That's not my job. My job is to, is I shared, uh, for example, what uh, the uh, member asked, what advice I personally got from my doctor. I certainly encourage all Canadians to talk to their doctors, uh, who will then be informed by experts and doctors both in their jurisdictions, uh, in their provinces and territories, and uh, by uh, the national guidance from NACI and from Health Canada. Uh, that is the best way to move forward. Don't take recommendations from politicians, particularly not conservatives. Take recommendations from your doctors and the experts. Yeah, with a little bit of political uh, oomph put into that as well. Uh, so what is the situation here and what should we be doing, especially if you're one of those people that is awaiting a second dose? Uh, are we concerned about AstraZeneca? I want to bring uh, Dr. Joel Lechkin into the conversation. He, of course, is a professor emeritus with the School of Health Policy Management and Faculty of Health at York University. He's also a former consultant of the federal government and the World Health Organization. Uh, doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. Good to be back. Let's, let's ask you right up front, uh, are you concerned about AstraZeneca? Um, well, fortunately, because I work in an emergency department and got vaccinated quite early on, I got the Pfizer vaccine. Okay. Um, as the rate of, um, of side effects of the AstraZeneca vaccine creep up, it's now estimated, I believe, at 1 in 60,000. So people, I think, should be concerned because this is not the kind of the kind of side effect that we're talking about, which are the blood clots, is not something that can be predicted. Um, you you may have the the underlying problem that will lead to those, but if you never get the vaccine, you would never have to worry. So I think that um, as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines come in. Um, that it may be the best option for people who are looking at a first dose to get one of those. But the, for a second dose, um, if you didn't have a reaction to the AstraZeneca vaccine the first time around, it's extremely unlikely that you're going to have a reaction the second time around. So if you're looking at a second dose of vaccine, um, I think the AstraZeneca is a reasonable choice. 
And again, as you've told us in past discussions, Doctor, I mean, we're kind of learning as we go along with all of these vaccines. Uh, but with the AstraZeneca, what about that timeline? I mean, you know, I mean, one fatality is one too many. We're all concerned about that. But is there a, a period of time after you had that first shot where you say, I'm out of the woods now, I, I'm not going to have that, that, that kind of side effect? Well, in the um, emergency department, we have um, an algorithm of a guide to help us figure out who might have this problem and, and who wouldn't. And the guideline says between four and I believe it's 21 days mm -hmm. after the vaccine, if you develop certain symptoms, um, then you should be investigated. So after about three weeks, um, you seem to be safe. So with that time frame in mind then, I mean, if you've had your vaccine four, five, six weeks ago and it was AstraZeneca, you're, you're probably okay. Uh, yeah. and, and if, you know, the time comes around for that second shot and they offer AstraZeneca, you, you, you feel comfortable to get that second shot if, you, if it's AstraZeneca? Yeah, I think you should. I think that, um, that the problems that we've been seeing with the blood clots come with the first, the first dose of the AstraZeneca. Um, <clears throat> and we still don't know whether or not it's safe to mix and match um, vaccines. The data um, is just coming out from a study in the UK. Um, so there are a few more side effects um, if, you mix, if you mix the, um, the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer, um, but we don't know whether or not the uh, level of immunity that you're going to get from mixing those is the same as if you would have gotten the same vaccine uh, twice. What's, what's causing this? And I know that, we're, again, I know this is early days when we're starting to do the analysis of this, but is, is, is the AstraZeneca a shock to the system or is it, it, does it unleash something that was already present in somebody's body? Um, well, we don't really understand fully the, the mechanisms that are going on, but it looks like it's the, there's a virus that's used to carry the, um, carry the, the genetic material that triggers people's immune systems. And the thinking is that it may be the virus that's being used um, that also triggers the um the cascade of reactions that lead to the blood clots and again as you say that analysis is ongoing and we're waiting the information from the uk because they've they've done the studies about this uh is it a, a good bet right now doctor that we are going to start mixing and matching that a lot of people may uh decide that look at i want that second shot i want moderna or, or pfizer instead of the, the the other ones that they may have had just to be i guess on the cautious side um well, I take my cues from one of the other doctors in the, um, in the, in the hospital where I work, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, and he seems to think that it's going to turn out to um, be safe to mix and match. But as I said, um, if you're looking at a second dose and you're offered the AstraZeneca, I think you should take it. If you're looking at a first dose and there's a choice between Pfizer and AstraZeneca, then I would probably I would go for the um, the Pfizer. That's probably a choice that people are going to have made for them, though, isn't it? Because it just seems as if now that we're not using AstraZeneca for that first dose, uh, anybody who's got an appointment this week or next or whenever they they finally got slotted in is probably going to get one of those other two anyway. 
Um, I believe so, um, but I don't have any real yeah. data about that. I want to pivot, if I could, Doctor. There's another issue here that we've talked about uh, in the last little while that uh, seems to be getting some traction, and that's the availability of the vaccines and where they are. And, and as you have told us many times, and, and so has Dr. Bogosh when he's been on the program, uh, we're not going to get rid of this thing until everybody in the, around the world uh, has access to the vaccines. And that seems to be a bit of a problem right now. And I know that Canada was ridiculed by an awful lot of nations in the early days because of the number of vaccines that they ordered. Uh, I think the number was something... Canada has a, a, enough vaccines or ordered on order anyway to inoculate every woman, man, and child four times over. And uh, they were considered and, and I guess accused of hoarding. Uh, then, of course, uh, because of the shortages they got, because a lot of that stuff didn't come on in a timely fashion, uh, they actually got vaccines from uh, from COVAX, uh, which is the uh, the Vaccine Global Access Program. And a lot of people ridiculed them for that as well. Uh, are we playing fair? Are we playing ball here? And, and uh, or are we doing things right now that are, are to the detriment of other nations that could use our help? I think it's the latter. I think that Canada should, well, not the individual Canadians, but the... Um, the government should be ashamed of itself for the kind of actions that it's taking. Um, we see other countries donating vaccines. Um, we see um, we see other countries like the United States, to the surprise of many many people, um, pushing for this um, suspension of intellectual property rights. So that um, we can use, un so that we can have unused capacity um, to make additional vaccines. We're looking right now. The world capacity to make vaccines is about three billion doses a year. Um, we need, if, if even if you exclude children from the calculations, we need something in the neighborhood of 11 or 12 billion doses to give everybody two shots. So we're at one third of the of our of what we need. Um, and we're not going to be able to get vaccines to everybody in the world um, at the rate we're going in the next within the next year. Some countries are looking at not being having their populations fully vaccinated until 2023, 2024. That means that the virus just circulates around and around, infects more and more people, mutates new variants, and eventually, inevitably, those new variants, or some of them, will come back to Canada, and who knows how good the vaccines are going to be. The other problem, the other issue with um, capacity is price, and although the companies are not charging exorbitant amounts at this point they've all said that once they think the pandemic is over not whether or not the world health organization says it but the individual companies they're going to raise prices and the ceo uh, sorry the chief financial officer of pfizer has said they typically charge 150 to 175 dollars per dose um, so unless we can manufacture lar much larger quantities and keep prices down, um, people in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia are just going to go on being infected, um, and that means we're going to get infected eventually. 
And this is one of the things, I guess, Doctor, that was a head-scratcher. I mean, I, I, according to the Charter, apparently, I guess, Canada is a member, of course, of, of the COVAX uh, group, uh, and and that entitles them, I guess, to access, uh, you know, the vaccines. But a lot of people were shocked, I guess, by this to say, look, that's not really who it was intended for. That's, that's really kind of like, you know, taking money from or food from a food bank and saying, well, I need it. Well, somebody else needs it more than you do. And I, I think it, it's, it sent a message, and it was, I think, the wrong message from a global perspective. It certainly did. And Canada was one of the very few wealthy countries that availed itself of the vaccines from COVAX. And COVAX was a reasonable idea initially, um, but COVAX was also predicated on um, on the idea that um, everybody would, that the countries would not cut bilateral deals with um, vaccine makers. Because when you do that and you've got a limited supply, um, you're just cutting down on how much is available through COVAX. And certainly when Canada has purchased or ordered, I believe it's 175 million doses of different kinds of vaccines, that's 175 million doses that aren't available through to COVAX. Um, and COVAX's goal of 20% of the world's population being vaccinated is a pretty modest goal. And right now they're actually about $2 billion short of even being able to achieve that goal. Well, yeah, the numbers are telling a story here, aren't they? I guess the, the latest we've seen here in Canada, about 30% of the population, I guess, has been vaccinated. Uh, and you compare that, for instance, uh, to the African continent, where only about 2% of, uh, of that population has been vaccinated. And that's, of course, through the, the COVAX program, uh, which indicates that we've got a real problem. And, and as you say, the virus is going to be rampant down there, uh, which I guess increases the possibility of it coming back to North America, too. Yep, it certainly does. Um <clears throat> So we're going to be looking at, even once everybody in the world gets vaccinated the first time, we're probably going to be looking at booster shots. Um, we don't know how often you're going to need it. Is it going to be once a year, twice a year? But that means that we're going to need um, 6 billion doses of vaccine every year for probably ever. Um, so we need that capacity, um, and we, we don't have it. Um, right now, it's possible to get it. It won't happen immediately with the, um, with the waiver on intellectual property because it does take time to ramp up production. You need the proper machinery. You need the, um, the personnel who have the training. You need the testing to make sure that the process is being done in the proper manner. Um, but in a year's time, it's possible that if we increase the um, number of places that can make the vaccine, that we'll, we will be able to produce 6 billion doses a year. And that's what we should be looking at. And again, we have to look at what's going to happen in these other continents as well. As you mentioned, uh, you know, that you flatten the curve and get rid of the virus by making sure that everybody's on site and everybody's got access to this, and that's not happening yet. Uh, doctor, as always, thank you so much for your perspective. Really appreciate the time. Stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again down the road. Thanks a lot, Bill. You stay well also. You betcha. Dr. Joel Lechton, of course, from uh, York University and a former advisor force with the uh, World Health Organization. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of concern about the vaccines, and especially with the AstraZeneca announcement, of course, by the government. And by the way, Nova Scotia has jumped on board, too. Alberta has already uh, decided to hold off on uh, issuing uh, first doses of AstraZeneca. But uh, our last guest, of course, uh, Dr. Lutchkin, talked about uh, the study that was going on in the U.K. right now, because they're much further along the road than we are, of course, and many of those people have been fully vaccinated right now, so they can give us some perspective on this. And uh, preliminary results about the ongoing study in the UK suggest that alternating the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines can cause more frequent to mild to moderate symptoms, they think, but really no other major safety concerns. Rob Westgate has some details. So far, the researchers have not yet determined how a combination of shots would affect the immune system's response when compared with sticking with the same COVID-19 vaccine for both the prime and booster shots. Chief Investigator Matthew Snape says the results from the study suggest mixed-dose schedules could result in an increase in work absences the day after immunization. He says that's important to consider when planning immunization for essential workers like those in health care. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. So much information going on, so much misinformation going on there, too. It's actually kind of devolved into a, a game of who do you trust, right? Uh, and, you know, because there's all the players here. I mean, you've got politicians giving us advice. You've got medical experts. You've got so many different people coming at us from all different areas. So who do you trust these days with the, the rollout in this third wave that's going on? Uh, well, the good folks at Proof Strategies have done some work on this and asked you and me and others uh, about exactly where that trust level is. Uh, Josh Cobden is the Executive Vice President of Proof Strategies, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Thanks for having me. This is a, a fascinating study, and I, I was reading this with great interest because we're getting that right now, and I'm, I'm noticing, of course, now that we're into the third wave and, you know, oh, what, 14 months, I guess, into this thing, an awful lot of skepticism from people saying, okay, I don't know who to believe anymore. I don't know what's going on. So you've asked those questions and uh, some pretty interesting results. And as, as always, though, you've given us perspective uh, with, the, with your survey uh, because you're asking essentially the same questions you asked a couple of months ago. And uh, it's interesting to see the change or lack of changes, I guess, in some people's opinions. Well, let's start with the good news. Yeah. <laughs> to achieve herd-level immunity, first we need herd-level trust uh, in vaccines, and it looks like we are close to achieving that. So when we did our Proof Strategies Can Trust Index back in January, trust in vaccines was at about 64% nationally. And that was encouraging, but health experts didn't feel it was high enough to get us close to that herd immunity level. With the rollout increasing, we wanted to see if trust had changed, and the good news is it's gone up by 10 points to 74% as of our latest data from last week. In Ontario, it actually grew by 11%, also to 74%. So the good news is, based on our research, if everyone who trusts vaccines can actually now get the jab, we would be in the neighborhood of herd immunity, according to health experts. And that's despite uneven messaging and guidance from public health and government campaigns, trust is rising. Which is good to see. Uh, and and you've broken this down into categories because you talk about the you know medical doctors. Uh, do you trust the science? I know because you've asked, okay, scientists too. And and the uh, the approval ratings, I guess, for, for those two special, uh, the, the medical folks and the, the scientific experts, is, is remaining actually, as you mentioned, it's actually higher than it was a couple of months ago. Yeah, this is, this is, again, I think really encouraging. Um, trust in doctors and scientists is uh, at record levels, definitely at the top of the charts for us. So medical doctors have gone up to 83% trust level, 80 in Ontario, so slightly less. And scientists uh, have gone up to 80% nationally, 78 in Ontario. 
So they are the most trusted sources for reliable information about COVID-19, according to Canadians. Even Canada's chief medical officer uh, and the provincial health officers who have you know, faced criticism, generally their trust levels are holding steady. Uh, so chief medical officer, about 68%, slightly lower in Ontario, 66 Provincial health officers um, holding steady nationally at 66%, though Ontario's Dr. David Williams uh, has the lowest uh, of all the provinces, about 59%. So, you know, what we've seen recently is that public, public health officials are trusted, but they do need to manage their words very carefully. Well, that's the old phrase, isn't it? The words matter. And, and, you know, we see Dr. Williams on a pretty regular basis, of course, on a, you know, with the, the press conferences that they have right now. And, and I would imagine, uh, the, the problem, uh, that, that he's having here in Ontario may well be the fact that, you know, the, some of the advice that he's giving to the premier about lockdowns and things of this nature it may not necessarily be the medical advice about vaccinations and such, uh, but it's, it's more along the lines, I guess, the impact it's having on our lives. And, and, and we respond in that manner, don't we? We do. Uh, it's interesting. The trust in political leaders is also holding relatively steady. So the prime minister and the premiers, uh, you know, they were low in January. They're still fairly low, but they're not dropping a whole lot. And the strategy of the political leaders uh, has been to sort of stay close to the white coats um, because we, they know that doctors and scientists are trusted well. Where we've seen that not work as well is in Ontario where some of the advice that's coming from public health has been called into question, and that isn't serving Doug Ford well. You've uh, broken this down into, as you say, on different levels of government, uh, the prime minister to the federal, to the provincial, and, of course, even the municipal. Uh, word of mouth from family and friends is an interesting category, though. Yeah, I mean, word of mouth from friends and family has, has always, in the six years that we've been doing the CanTrust Index, has been um, really one of the leading sources of of information about brands and organizations and leaders. However, when it comes to uh, COVID-19, um, friends and families are, are not anywhere close to doctors and scientists. So I guess what that means is, you know, we, we believe those across the kitchen table or over the back fence to a certain extent. Uh, but when it comes to, uh, when it, when it to COVID-19, they're not the top. And in fact, they've fallen. You know, it's interesting about this, too. I, he broke this down regionally and because uh, I was interested to see what was going on, in, uh, in the, especially with Atlantic Canada right now, because we've seen uh, by the results and, and the number of cases, et cetera, that those provinces have done a pretty decent job of controlling this. I mean, they've had their spikes like everyone else has, but much better than other parts of the country. Uh, and I guess it's not surprising with that, Josh, that they are the ones that actually seem to have the most trust in, in doctors and scientists. Yeah, I mean, the Atlantic Canadian experience through this, uh, until recently, where they've had some problems, um, has really been a sort of textbook case study in, in, in how to control your population from getting, from getting sick. And the world's noticed, or at least Canadians have noticed. So when we ask Canadians which region they think has done the best job, Atlantic Canada came out on top, uh, 28%. That said, about 27% you know, didn't know Ontario was way down. Just one in 10 said they thought Ontario has dealt with this the best. And even among those who live in Canada, only one in four say Ontario uh, has done the best. Uh, so even Ontarians are not necessarily putting a lot of confidence in, in the way things have been handled here.
But again, when you look at that, it's a reflection on, and I guess we've seen as, as the success or non-success of that, uh, Atlantic Canada, who seems to have the most faith in, in the quote-unquote experts, uh, seem to have the best job of handling this. Uh, and you, you juxtapose that with, for instance, Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, where there's very little uh, support, I guess, or lot, much less support anyway, uh, for the medical experts. And they, conversely, of course, have, have had some of the worst examples of, of the virus and, the, and the, the spread of the virus. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, across almost all areas that we measure in trust, not just COVID-19, but trust in leaders and trust in business, there's a sort of axis of mistrust in Western Canada. And, you know, that could be due to the economic hardships they've been having recently. We know that when the economy falls, so does trust. Um, but the one area where Western Canadians generally uh, are, are in line with the rest of Canada in terms of trust is in doctors and scientists. It may not necessarily be quite as high, but, you know, it's pretty consistent. Talk to us a little bit about, I want to just circle back, if I could, to the the elected leaders, the politicians, Uh, and and a relatively high level of trust, as you mentioned, uh, right across the country. Some of them spike a little bit higher than others. Is is it the daily press conferences? Is it the fact that they're in front of us almost, uh, you know, I was going to say by uh, by the hour. I mean, you know, the Premier does his things every day here. The Prime Minister is back to doing his daily conferences right now, too. Is, is, Is that solidifying that trust that we're feeling? Well, I mean, you know, a, a general rule of thumb is to communicate clearly and, and consistently and often. And, uh, you know, I think our leaders are taking that to heart with, with the daily press conferences. And I think that, you know, where there's sometimes an interesting juxtaposition is, is what uh, Canadians or Ontarians see from their leader when they watch them speaking live and then what they read uh, or, or see in terms of opinion pieces. Not always the same. Um, but I think the leaders have generally understood that they need to be up front um, and, you know, ideally with somebody in a lab coat next to them. Let's talk about demographics. That's always a fascinating way, you know, age groups. Uh, who is most trusted? Who are the skeptics? And What did you find out? Well, um, and this, again, is one of those areas where we see consistent levels of trust. Uh, the younger you are, uh, the least likely you are to be trusting. Um, so if you look at, for example, vaccines, Trust in vaccines among uh, among those under 25 is in the 50s. Um, trust in vaccines among those who are over 75 is around 95%. So, you know, as people live longer and, uh, you know, experience more in their lives, they become more trusting. We see that as well with uh, income, maybe not surprisingly. We see it with education. We see it with access to the news media. Uh, there is a direct correlation between those factors and levels of trust. And so trust in vaccines, for example, is interesting. Like we're, we're up at around 74%, which is good. It would likely be much higher were it not for the younger demographics who are uh, less trusting. And, and that's a multifaceted answer, I guess. I mean, because you you know, you talk about the medical aspect, about vaccines, and, you know, do you trust what the doctors and the politicians are saying? But uh, you've got to, I guess, include in that, uh, you know, as they're deciding on how they actually feel about this, uh, some of the government programs that are in place, too, you know, wage subsidy programs and things like that, because those that, that demographic you've just talked about, they're probably the ones that are more affected by some of the economic downturns that have happened as a result of the pandemic, and they're looking at the government saying, what are you going to do for me? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we didn't ask specifically what might be leading to their mistrust. But um, as I said said earlier, if you're having a hard time financially uh, or even socially, you're going to be less trusting of those that make decisions in government. And uh, there's no question that young people, young adults have had an enormously difficult time. 
over the last 16 months. And uh, if they're feeling mistrustful, you know, maybe we can understand that. Uh, you also ask about journalists, and uh, we, many of us in this profession usually have targets on our back in, in these sorts of times. Uh, it's, I, I guess, kind of tepid support, I guess, uh, for, for the, the, the job the journalists are doing in covering this and getting that information out. Yeah, well, when we ask about journalists specifically, uh, it's, it's, you know, sort of mid-pack. But when we ask about sources of trusted information, um, right now the media is actually at its highest point we've seen in a long time. Just in general, um, you know, the COVID-19 is, has made news junkies out of all of us. And I think people are spending, you know, a lot more time paying attention to the news, reading the news, listening to the news than they may have before. They want those daily updates. They're interested in, in what the science is being reported and the decisions that are being made. The one exception is, again, young Canadians who are not consuming uh, a whole lot of mainstream media and not very trusting of it. Talk about the vaccination rates, and, and you know that's something we've been tracking. It's something the federal government's uh, taken a lot of heat for, especially in early days. It seems to be catching up now, and actually we're, our numbers are pretty good. But from a regional standpoint, uh, who's getting the vaccination? Is, is there one area of the country that seems to be more in step with this than others? Don't have that data handy, but I mean, what we're hearing now is Ontario is you know approaching fifty percent, um, which is which is definitely encouraging. Um, uh, and we know as well that those who have received the vaccination are generally more trusting in many areas of our study as well. So these are people that are buying into the program, uh, buying into the approach that's being taken uh, to fight this. And so, you know, the more vaccinations we can get in people's arms, the more likely we are also to have a, a trusting population. And that's really important. You, you talked about uh, age demographics certainly is a factor in this situation. Uh, what about income and, and, and lifestyle and things of that nature? And, you know, there, there are a wide variety of, of different areas here, you know, people that, uh, that may be down and out, people that are, you know, have, have challenges financially and, and employment-wise and others. Uh, they tend to be a lot more skeptical about, skeptical rather about government, too. And, and are, are they on side here with what's going on, or are they kind of looking at this and saying, I don't buy any of this stuff? Yeah, well, those in lower income demographics are, are less likely to have received, you know, the first dose and certainly a second dose. Um, that can have a lot to do with their ability to get out of work um, for this sort of thing. They don't have paid sick days. They don't have paid time off. Um, it may be inconvenient for them. And so, you know, they're, they're less vaccinated and they're also less trusted. So what what do you read from this now? As you as compare, you know what you did in earlier part of the year with what you've got right now, because uh, you know the, the initial response I think a lot of people have is, boy, the longer this thing goes on, uh, the more people are going to be offside and just say these guys don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're talking about. We shouldn't even be having this third wave. And I, I I've heard those opinions from our listeners. Uh, I'm sure you have as well. But the numbers that you guys did here through the surveys with uh, with proof, Josh, seem to indicate uh, that the, it's really the opposite. We seem to actually be growing in, in our respect and our, our trust in what's going on with our elected officials and our scientific experts. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we ask questions about trust in vaccine and trust in leadership. We didn't ask, for example, if people support, you know, the inability to go play golf or play tennis. Uh, and if we did, I think, you know, there'd be a lot of displeasure around that. And, and Oh, yeah. You've talked about that uh, on your show. But, you know, in terms of vaccine, we see this as really encouraging. Uh, COVID-19 has made us all into sort of armchair vaccine experts. And if you need proof of that, not only have 90% of Canadians heard of each of the four leading brands of vaccines, 
they actually have opinions about them. And I can't think of a time when I've ever seen such interest and awareness in, in therapeutics. You know, we're seeing definitely a varying level of trust by brand. And so on May 3rd, when our survey was in the field, Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization said that the mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna are preferred and that Canadians should weigh the risks before they decide which one to receive. Well, lo and behold, about 80% of Canadians trust vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna, but fewer than 50% trust the vaccines made by J&J and AstraZeneca. So, you know, there's definitely an awareness level there. But what, again, what, what I think encourages us is that the low scores in trust for AstraZeneca and J&J are not pulling down uh, overall trust in vaccines the way you might think they would. So Canadians are aware enough, they understand enough, they're opinionated enough to know, I may not trust AstraZeneca, but I still want an immunization. And the concern was that, that the, the lack of trust in certain brands would drag down the whole category and make vaccine skeptics you know, out of all of us. We haven't seen that. How do we feel about the pharmaceutical companies themselves? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're in one case, you know, kind of classified as heroes. You know, how, well, look at what they've done in less than a year. Uh, but we've heard some problems and some pitfalls, like you say, with AstraZeneca. J&J seems to be stumbling at the, the start line here, too. Are, 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 are we maintaining our faith in those companies to, to be able to deliver what we need? Yeah, well, the pharmaceutical industry is actually holding steady since we pulled in January. So about half, just under half of Canadians um, uh, trust the information they get from the pharmaceutical industries, which is maybe, you know, a proxy for whether or not they actually trust the industry at all. Mm -hmm. Holding steady at about half, um, and that's relatively, you know, high. It's higher than, you know, the premier, it's higher than the prime minister, it's higher than mayors. Um, Big Pharma has not always been... Um, a, a trusted source of information or trusted mm-hmm. in general, but they are having a bit of a moment. And, uh, and you know, I think that provided that the you know, vaccines continue to do what they are supposed to do, even AstraZeneca's you know, issues are, are extraordinarily rare. I mean, you're more likely to, to, to get injured driving to a vax clinic than you are you know, to get a blood clot. And you're more likely to get a blood clot from COVID-19 than you are from the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, I think the pharma industry is, is doing well right now. Oh, it's fascinating uh, to, to look at the data that you guys accumulate here, and especially uh, on, a, on a time frame basis like this to understand just where we are on this. Because, I mean, I, we all know about, about pandemic fatigue and everything else, but uh, I guess the reassuring news, as you mentioned off the top here, Josh, is we're hanging in there, uh, and uh, we, we're trusting the people that are giving us uh, the vaccines and giving us the information at this stage. Uh, thanks so much for the great work that you do, and thanks for spending some time with us today, Josh. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Take care. Josh Cobden, of course, is the executive VP for Proof Strategies. By the way, you can Google them, and uh, the whole report uh, of all the questions that uh, Josh just talked about is is on that page, and you can get uh, further details about that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. And listening to the uh, official media conference, of course, about the announcement of uh, funding from the federal and provincial governments for Hamilton's LRT system, $1.7 billion from the feds, $1.7 billion from the provincial government. We're going to carry on with 
with the coverage. As a matter of fact, the Infrastructure Minister McKenna is going to be with us a little bit later on in the program to give us some of the details about this. But I do want to bring in some other people because this is a, a, a project and an announcement that's going to have a huge impact in, in just about all parts of the city, especially in the east end of the city where a lot of this construction is going to be going on. And I want to bring in uh, Councillor Chad Collins from Ward 5 in, the, in that part of the city. Chad, thanks for hanging in through this whole thing. I appreciate your, your patience, first of all. Uh, your initial reaction to, to the official announcement here? Well, I, I, I wasn't here when they announced um, the, the terms and conditions associated with it. I'm fresh out of a 10 o'clock meeting. And so, ah. you know, the fact that I think, Bill, that I'm forced to, to tune into the radio or or actually, um, you know, try to follow the, the news announcement, I think is concerning because I think what it illustrates is that council, you know, wasn't part of this decision, the decision-making process. And I, I think there's, there's a lot, um, I think, here as it relates to transparency or lack thereof. And, um, you know, and these discussions have been taking place over the last couple of months without any council input. And, and if I took the last comments to mean that this is a post-pandemic infrastructure project rather than a transit project, then the normal course would be for council to have some deliberation around the table about infrastructure needs and to make a formal application to the provincial and or federal governments. That's the normal pro- course of business. And, and unfortunately, this is, this is a political announcement today. Um, I, I would have lots of questions in terms of what, what's required of the city. And uh, I think it's, it speaks to the whole issue of where we've been in, with this in the past. It was a handshake political agreement that brought the, the first announcement from the Wynn government and now it looks like there have been some backroom deals cut between a handful of people to bring the announcement to, to what we have here today. I, I don't share the mayor's enthusiasm, and I don't believe that um, his assessment of where the community's at is an accurate one. The emails and calls that I've had just in the last 24 hours, Bill, have been calls and emails for, of concern from people who are, who've said, can you please get your priorities straight? We're in the middle of a pandemic, and one of the last things we should be talking about is a continued uh, push for LRT. Well, we do want to remind our listeners too, Chad, that the announcement that was made today uh, was for capital costs. In other mm-hmm. words, to, to design and build this thing. And, and by the way, there is still design. I know they keep saying the the term shovel ready, yeah. uh, but there's a lot of work to be done before they actually put a shovel into the ground here. But the, the, the thing they didn't talk about, and that's something you've raised time and time mm-hmm. again, is the operating cost. I mean, how much is it going to cost to run this thing on an annual basis? And, yeah. and since neither one of the other levels of government have talked about their uh, 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 desire to, to, to you know, partake in that, yeah. i got to assume it's going to be up to the city to, to cover the operating costs. And we don't even know what that number is, do we? No, we don't. And, and I heard your conversation yesterday with John Best, and it was an excellent one as it relates to, you know, the, the very issue that you just raised in terms of, of operating costs. And John nailed it in terms of the number that the, the mayor's referenced in terms of 7 to $9 million. He's conflating that with costs that, um, with the actual maintenance cost, or sorry, the operating costs, which are, are a lot higher than that, probably three, four, or five times that number. So the city was never to operate this. We were never to maintain the system. This was a provincial project. They were going to own the assets. They were going to build it. They were going to run it. And they were going to replace the assets when they reached the end of their useful lifespan. It seems as if at this point, if, and I can only take some of the, the comments in the media over the last 24 hours, it seems as if that the city's now being sucked into now paying for the maintenance of the system, which was never part of the original arrangement. So lots of questions, and unfortunately, Council hasn't had the opportunity to ask those questions prior to today. They did approve my motion to ask the MTO and Metrolinx to come into Council and have these discussions, but I think political marching orders probably prevented the bureaucrats from coming to City Hall 
in answering some of the questions that we have around funding and around operations. And I think today's announcement is an indication why they were told to stand down and, and not uh, travel to Hamilton or attend virtually. Let me ask you, Carol Benner de Sue left here before we have to mm-hmm. do a break. Uh, what's, what's the next step here as far as you as a counselor and the rest of your council colleagues are concerned? Well, I think we need a debrief. I mean, we're, we're being asked again, Bill, to make huge decisions on behalf of the city without all the information. And I was on your counterpart, Scott Radley's show last night, and yep. he said, you know, do you have a fear you're going to be wrong? And I said, well, I, I, my biggest fear right now is that I'm, council is going to be forced to make a decision on the largest infrastructure project in the city's history without having the, all the information in front of us. Those costs, you know, were hidden by the previous Liberal government. We weren't informed that it was over budget. It only leads me to believe or, and ask the question right now, what else is being withheld from us? Well, at some point, those numbers have to come out, don't they? They do. They, they should. Chad, I appreciate you jumping in. I know it's been a hectic day for you guys already, and uh, this big announcement obviously is going to have huge impacts, and this is not the end of this uh, discussion and this debate, certainly. It's just, uh, I think, another chapter that's coming up. More coming up and uh, more conversations down the road for this. Thanks again, Chad. Thanks, Bill. Board 5 Councilor Chad Collins uh, expressing a lot of concern and skepticism about the announcement. I mean, the money's on the table. That's great. But uh, there's a lot to be discussed yet, uh, especially when it comes to operating costs and, and a number of other things. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A big day for Hamilton, of course. A much anticipated announcement from the federal and provincial governments about funding for uh, light rail transit for the city of Hamilton. Uh, you heard the official announcement, of course, uh, a little more than an hour ago right here on CHML. And, uh, well, the minister in charge, uh, who pretty much uh, quarterbacked, I guess, the announcement as the Infrastructure and Communities Minister for the federal government, and that, of course, is Catherine McKenna. And she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what is going to be happening with that money. Uh, Minister, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to join you, Bill. It's a great day for Hamilton. Well, and uh, it's uh, an interesting day, too. The, you, I, I know you mentioned this an awful lot in your comments, uh, Minister, but the collaboration between uh, the federal and provincial governments. Now, it's been known to happen before, but it doesn't happen on a regular basis, especially with amounts of money this large. Uh, look, this was a really tough deal. Um, you know, this, the LRT has gone through ups and downs. It was canceled at one point by the province, um, but they wanted to build a lot of uh, a lot of projects in the in the GTA and I said we're making sure Hamilton's part of that. Uh, so we were able to get them back to the table, also significantly increase their commitment to one point seven billion and it was always a condition of the bigger deal, which is amazing. And and uh, you know, huge credit to uh, to Minister Mulroney. It was not uh, easy for her. It wasn't easy for her in Hamilton, but uh, you know, we were able to get to a great deal which is Great four major projects in Toronto. Uh, also invested in streetcars, which keeps the plant open in Thunder Bay uh, yesterday. And then today's announcement, which is uh, really a historic opportunity for Hamilton. And you know, I'm someone from who is from Hamilton. Uh, I swam at McMaster. Uh, St. Mary's was, was on McMaster campus then. I swam at pools across the country, including Orchard Park, and certainly made it to Eastgate Square. Uh, and everywhere in between. So I think that this is about how we get cars off the road, we improve commute times, but it's also about building Hamilton. Investment. So good public transit uh, is can't just go to the greater Toronto area. It's got to include Hamilton, too. 
One of the things that uh, I know you talked about, and, and as did Minister Mulroney and Mayor Eisenberger in the announcement a little while ago, uh, had to do with not just the collaboration, uh, but again, the idea of, of where we are in this project right now. And I know many of you use the term shovel-ready. Uh, you've done a, a, an awful lot of assessment on this. You and I have been talking about this project for a number of years now, Minister. Uh, is this shovel-ready? Is it ready to go? I, I don't mean in the next week or so, but I mean, what's the next step of the process here? Uh, this is certainly a shovel-ready project. Uh, look, I mean, think about all the work has gone already into this project. It was almost ready to go. Uh, so let, let, there'll be jobs starting, you know, now because people are going to get working on this project. Um, the next step is, uh, well, I mean, the, the council needs to have a discussion. They're going to have a presentation um, from Metrolinx to go through this, and then they want to get started, restarted, I should say, on the procurements. But, but the reason we, this is such a priority for our government, like projects, public transit projects across the country, is we're in a COVID recession. Uh, we need jobs. We've lost a lot of jobs. Um, it's been very tough on our economy. Um, I, we've certainly been there as a federal government investing 80 cents on every dollar. But now we've got to grow our economy and get people back to work. And that's exactly what this is. And so I think I was pretty clear in my comments. Like, we want shovels in the ground as soon as possible. We need this project to go forward. But city council is still going to have a role to play here. I mean, they still have to give this a thumbs up or thumbs down, don't they? Uh, well, Mayor Eisenberger talked about, you know, maybe the, 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 I mean, this is a project that was approved before. Let's be clear. It's the same, it's the same project. Um, I mean, I think that there will be a good discussion in council. I certainly hope that people recognize there is no other project on the table. Um, so this is a huge opportunity, $3.4 billion investment by the federal government in the province. Um, so I just think it's really important that, that we remain focused and actually get big things done. There's been a lot of talk about this project. Uh, we're now stepping up to fund it, and uh, it's a huge opportunity. We heard from key stakeholders, um, key employers in the city, uh, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce with Keenan Loomis talking about you know hundreds of businesses that support this project, or you, know, you had McMaster University, you had Hamilton Health Sciences, this is great, but it's also great for people who weren't even represented, um, like our essential workers, who do not have any other option to get to work. And they could be coming from Stony Creek all the way uh, to go to MAC. Um, so it's, it's a, just a really important project. And by the way, climate change is real, uh, and transportation is 20% of our emissions, and we're going to get out of the pandemic. As hard as it seems right now, we're going to get out of it, but we're going to have to tackle the climate crisis, and that means you know, building major public transit that's zero emissions. Um, and, of course, jobs, 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 and supply chain across Canada. So I think it's a great project. I think, you know, I think we've done everything to make the case, and I think now let's just move forward. Uh, just back to the council, and I, I know this is not in your wheelhouse, obviously, as, as a federal minister, but you've, you've followed the debate, of course, I know, and even when you're back in town here visiting your family, uh, you've, you've seen the, the long, protracted discussions they've had at city council about this. Uh, and there are those on council, an element of people on council that would rather see bus rapid transit than this. Uh, and, and in the past, they've asked the, the provincial government, just give us the money and we'll do this instead of this. Uh, I get it in a sense, because just based on the comments you made this morning, uh, you don't want to entertain that conversation. Uh, this is for shovel-ready projects. The only shovel-ready project is uh, is LRT. But, I mean, you know, look, I've, of course I've followed the discussion. I'm in Hamilton. I mean, not through the pandemic. Sadly, I miss my family because I can't visit them. But I've followed this closely over a very long time. And what I'd say is from my experience, because I've been involved, obviously, with major public transit projects across the country. You know, just go over to Kitchener-Waterloo. They're LRT. What happened? There were definitely some people who, you know, worried about the project, worried about the impacts. But what did we see? The tax base grew substantially. 
$3.2 billion was invested in new construction since the LRT was approved. There was intensification, improved the downtown core, and of course it got cars off the road and, you know, reduced congestion and was good uh, for folks. And other people I've heard, you know, people say, well, wait a minute, I want to go up the mountain. Or some people said, let's go to Dundas. In Ottawa, we had the first phase of the LRT, and now we're building the second phase of the LRT. So you build it, and then you can expand. But you have to get started somewhere. Um, This is a huge, historic, game-changing opportunity for Hamilton. Um, I'm certainly hopeful that people embrace this. I know a lot of people have. Uh, I've been looking at social media. I know there's lots of folks who are happy, and they're happy there are conditions associated with this because the focus of every dollar we invest, it has to get multiple benefits. Um, so there are conditions ranging from community benefit agreements, and there are already some that were uh, negotiated, and that means like making sure that it's local jobs, local uh, businesses that benefit, um, that there's affordable housing. We know we've been making historic investments in affordable housing, but we need to make sure there's more affordable housing along the line. Um, we need to be making sure it's accessible to everyone. Uh, of course, we need to drive down emissions, so we need to make sure we're doing everything to do that as well as minimize the environmental impacts, but the broader impacts in consultation with communities. So I think that, you know, for I get it that some people may have some concerns, but I hope what you heard today, uh, you recognize that this is a historic opportunity and there is no other deal. The, the cash is, as you mentioned, the capital cost of $1.7 billion, matched by the, the provincial government, too. Uh, someday we'll have that discussion about how you got them to up at the, the ante, because they, they were hard and fast, so it's only going to be a billion. Uh, that must have been a fascinating discussion. The one thing that didn't get mentioned today that I know a lot of people on the council that, that I've talked to, Minister, are concerned about is the uh, the operating cost, the annual operating cost. And I don't even know that we have a number on that, but in the discussions, uh, you, you talked about the capital cost and the work that needs to be done here, and as you said, some of the ancillary projects that are coming, like like affordable housing and things of this nature. But are we to assume that the the operating costs for this project are going to be the responsibility of the city? Well, I mean, there's a discussion going on between the city and the province, but I mean, that's normal that you have the you know day to day operating costs. That's always the case. This case currently in Hamilton, and they get offset by fare box revenues, and uh, and also getting you know they they don't have to procure buses, getting them off the road. Uh, province is committed to life cycle costs, so uh, it is a massive commitment by the federal government and the province, um, and you know a good deal for the for the taxpayers of Hamilton. So in the negotiations, uh, th- that was not part of it then. You're, you're assuming that the, that's going to be a discussion between the city and the, the provincial government then? Uh, well, the province it pays life cycle costs. And, uh, I mean, the, there is a discussion ongoing, but I think everyone's well aware uh, that, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the day-to-day costs, the city uh, pays day-to-day costs. Um, but they're going to work out those details. But it's a good deal for Hamilton taxpayers, and it's a good deal for Hamilton this will actually increase investments. As I say, in the, in the case of Kitchener-Waterloo, the tax base has grown substantially. That's hugely important. Uh, there's been intensification. Uh, there's been uh, huge amounts of investment in new construction and creating good jobs. And then, of course, there's the massive long-term benefits for the community. And that's why you saw all the largest employers uh, were standing there supporting this, uh, represented by the Chamber of Commerce. The mayor talked about 200 uh, businesses signed uh, signed uh, a letter, uh, you know, com- supporting the project in the past. So this is 
I think this is a really great opportunity. And as I think I said there, maybe I was quite exuberant. Uh, like, we got to seize the day. We do need to restart our economy uh, and get jobs right now. We do need to tackle climate change. We need to uh, have uh, an amazing city with great public transit. That's where folks want to live, work, and play. And this is a huge opportunity for Hamilton. It's a busy, busy day for you, too, I know, because of the, the calls and, and a number of calls from media folks, too, trying to get more details on this. I uh, really do appreciate you jumping in here on a short notice, Minister, and uh, giving us some of the details on this. Uh, obviously, more to come on this and more discussions, uh, and we look forward to those. But thank you for this today. Uh, well, thanks very much, Bill, and a shout-out to everyone in Hamilton. It's been a really hard time, a really hard year, and everyone's really come together. It's greatly appreciated. But please get vaccinated with the first vaccine available uh, follow public health measures, and we're going to get out of this, and I'm going to come back to Hamilton. <laughs> Soon, sooner than later, I hope. Thanks again, Minister. I hope so, too. Take care. Infrastructure Minister uh, Catherine McKenna, of course, making the announcement about the uh, the funding for LRT, and more to come on that, of course, uh, later on in the program uh, and through the upcoming days as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.